Hey, sales Lift audience, it's Tyler Lindley here. Today we have Bob Moesta. He's the author of the brand new book, Demand Side Sales, which helps you how to stop selling and help your customers make progress. We have a great conversation today. Bob is actually one of the original pioneers of the jobs to be done theory that he created back in the mid 90s at Harvard Business School with uh, Clayton Christensen. Uh, so you probably are familiar with that concept. Bob has applied that to selling uh, with his new book, Demand Side Sales. And we have a fantastic conversation coming to you right now. A little, little of my background, like I said, I've been breaking things for 50 years, fixing things for 45, but I've been building things for 30 years. And these are the four people who taught me how to do that. One is Dr. Deming, who is the, the, the one on the far right. Let's see. And if you're looking at it, it's going to be your far right. Deming is the guy who went to Japan in 1949. And he was the father of the Toyota production system and lean and agile, all that stuff, all that thinking leads back to that gentleman. And I happened to be his intern when I was 18 years old. And he taught me how to think about things from a building perspective. And then the next gentleman is uh, Clayton Christensen, who has been a friend of mine for, I don't know, almost 30 years, passed away in January. And he's the one that I built the Jobs to Be Done theory with and method and tools and then Dr. Taguchi is somebody I met when I was in Japan, and he is an engineer from Nippon Telephone and Telegraph who taught me how to prototype and and really how to learn. What, when I don't know what to do, what should I do <laughs> is the best way to put it. And then Dr. Willie Moore was a particle physicist and my first boss at Ford who taught me basically the whole social aspects of being an engineer. So it was very, so I was able, I'm dyslexic. I've had three close head brain injuries. I can't read and I can't write. I got scribe media to help me write the book. So all I did was talk and they basically then turned it into a book for me. And so for the most part, I've collaborated on many books, but this is my first book. And it's mainly written for people who are startups and people trying to scale And at the same time, people who sell, but don't know they sell. So think of like teachers actually sell a lesson because uh, the way that I talk about is, is we really don't want to sell. We want to help people make progress. And so the teacher is responsible to help the student make progress or the therapist is responsible to help the the patient make progress in their rehabilitation. And so how do we actually think about this? Because there's a lot of people who don't want to sell, but sell. And so if we reframe it around the notion of helping customers make progress and frame it around service, you start to realize that people can actually understand it maybe a little bit better who we're not used to it. So it's not written for the ideal salespeople or the people who are like really good at it. My belief is they already know all this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Gotcha. So it's written for the accidental salesperson then, or the... So it's written, it's written for the people. So for example, as me as an engineer, I realize I love to build things, but I actually have to sell my ideas to other people. And yep. I never realized that I had to sell. And so I felt if I just made the best thing, people would want it. <laughs> but the reality is like what I want and what they want are different things. And so at the end of the day, I do have to sell, but I, I, need, a, I need a frame around it that doesn't make me feel icky like I'm pushing my product on people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's really what this is about. And so the basic framework comes from this notion of what we call a job to be done. And let me just share my screen and I'll give you, are you familiar with that concept or any of that that kind of thinking or talking? Yeah, I am. So he's, uh, I work, my day job is at HubSpot and uh, based up in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Yep. Yeah. So our two founders are very, very fond of. I, I am the architect of that. Yeah. Yeah. So they, I've definitely heard of his work a lot. He's, okay. he's in a lot of our training, like a lot of our, a lot of our employee training, they use that jobs to be done theory to, to yeah. talk about. Um, so all I've done is applied jobs to be done theory to 
sales. Okay. And so the whole aspect is that I think I'm sharing. So yep. there's a supply side of the world and there's a demand side of the world. And what happens is what the supply side is where I grew up. Uh, if I have a business and I have a product is okay. How do I build that product? What are the features and benefits of the product and how do, what are the experience and attributes and like go build a product and then figure out who needs that product. And so build it and they will come. And what I found over the years is that actually doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> And that we actually might try to be customer focused, but we're always asking the question of, if I build mattresses, who needs mattresses? Like, and how do I segment it out? And how do I think about it? And so we look over this wall, but we don't see the customer who's buying one mattress. We see markets, we see segments, we see leads, we see traffic. So what happens is you start to miss the notion of what causes somebody to say, today's the day they need a new mattress. And so when you go talk to companies and you talk to them about their marketing and their sales, they have a standard pitch and marketing is basically saying, well, I know everything I need to know about the customer, right? And so, but, but when I ask details about it, say, what's, what causes somebody to say, today's the day I need new windows or that I need, to, I need a new software application. I need a new CRM. Yeah. And so what they start to realize is they don't understand the causality of it. And so part of this is taking a minute and, and not focusing on the supply side, but can we actually understand the pure demand side, which starts with this notion of a struggling moment. If people don't struggle, right, they actually don't buy anything new. So if you buy Tide and you run out of Tide, you just keep buying Tide. Yeah. But the moment that Tide doesn't work for you, that's when you, you say, well, maybe I need something else. And that's when you switch to something. And so part of this is what we're talking about is what causes people to switch, right? Because buying the same old thing is restocking. And I don't think of that as sales. Sales is actually helping people do something they couldn't do before. Mm. Right. And so ultimately it's zooming in on this whole aspect of changing the reference point from the product to the progress that people are trying to make. Right. So who, when, where, and why to then help me understand what, how, and how much versus what do I make? And then that drives everything else. Right. So I had a conversation yesterday with somebody who was basically saying, yeah, well, in sales, they taught me basically to find pain points and then to morph my product to fit into the pain points so they could buy it. Whether it's almost like I have to distort my product to fit <laughs> their situation and that's how you sell. And so you sell by making sure you get their pain points up front. But if it doesn't help them make progress, you shouldn't be selling to them. <laughs> Right. right. But most cases, everybody's a lead. Everybody's a potential buyer. And we always worry about the sale and not necessarily the end result of what the customer is going to do with it. And so part of it is, to be honest, I've, I've been helping companies do this for a long time, but I've never formally put it together this way. And so I said, let me see if I can actually write a book about it and see if people have this problem and, and they can be interested in it. So I basically dive into this whole aspect of how do people really make progress? And then how do we actually align our sales system to actually mimic it? So the notion here is people don't buy products, they hire them to do a job in their life. And so what is the context that people are in when they say they need something? And what is the outcome that they seek? And so instead of focusing on ways to get across the river, I want to know why they're at the river and what are they hoping is on the other side? Because I can actually come up with 20 ways to get them across that river. I can build a bridge, I can get a boat, I can build a, a tunnel, I can get a plane, I can do a helicopter, I can teach them how to swim. Like, it's a whole bunch of things I can do. And so, and to be honest, they don't actually think about solutions, they think about outcomes. Like, and so we end up feeding them with all the features and benefits, but those features don't actually have anything, usually don't have anything to do with the outcomes that they want. And so we're laddering or connecting as opposed to really understanding. And 
ultimately, we use these two frameworks. One is called the forces of progress, which is what pushes somebody to say they need to make a change, what pulls them to make a change, what anxieties do they have, and what habits do they have to the, or allegiances do they have to the current product. And so if the top two forces are not greater than the bottom two forces, people aren't going to buy. They're not going to make progress. And so part of this is to understand it's not when people say, oh, I bought this new car because I got a deal or I bought this car because it gets great gas mileage. That's actually not why they bought the car. They bought the car for about 20 different things. And this is the one thing they tell themselves. But the reality is it's a whole bunch of things that had to be going on for them to actually buy. Yeah. And, and so part of this is to then focus on how do people buy? The second part is to change the orientation from our sales funnel to their timeline. And if you look at whether I'm buying, to be honest, a, a pack of gum, a new cell phone, a new house, or switching churches, the reality is there's always this process of first thought, passive looking, active looking, deciding, consuming. And what, what I end up doing is taking that process and saying, all right, how do we actually unpack that process to understand how people do that in your business? So for example, first thought. People can't see your product unless they have space in the brain. So the way Clay said it is questions create spaces in the brain for solutions to fall into. And so if, if people can't create the space, they can't see it. And so how do you actually create space? There's only four ways that I know. One is you ask them a question, you give them a new metric, you tell them a story, or you state the obvious. But when you ask them a question, you don't answer it like, well, can't sleep? You need a new mattress. You just say, can't sleep, because that's the thing that actually starts to burn a hole in their stomach to go, I know I can't sleep. I know I got to do something about it. But if you say, hey, can't sleep, got a mattress. Oh, I don't need a mattress. And they just literally shut it down. And if they don't have space, it literally bounces off their head. The second part is once they have the space, they can start to learn. And, that, and to be honest, they don't actually go out and do something about it right away. They actually accumulate as they go through life. Now that they can finally see, oh, you know what? I can't sleep. Maybe I need uh, to exercise later. Maybe I need to do something else. They start to learn ways in which they can describe both the problem and the solution. And then they start to actively look. And actively looking is, it's almost like a kid in a candy store or a magic wand. Oh, does it have this? Could it have that? And they're looking for very specific requirements, but they're actually not connecting the dots. And so this is where like in an RFP situation, they're, 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 you got to have this, got to have this, got to have this. We need this feature, that feature. And Half the time what I'm, I'm teaching salespeople to do is like, well, so why do you need that feature? I said, well, because somebody else has it. It's okay, what's the outcome you're going to get by this feature? Oh, I don't know. And so you start to realize, well, that feature is going to cost you X, Y, and Z. And so part of this is we never challenge people to why they need things and ultimately the outcome that they're trying to get, right? And so part of this is inactive looking and deciding is where you start to actually frame up the trade-off they have to make. Everybody makes a trade-off, everybody. And people buy things, companies don't buy things. So part of it is to understand the social and emotional and functional components and the trade-offs they're willing to make. So for example, I just did an interview with the people who got a new switch banks. And one of the things they talked about is I, I went with this bank, I thought I could tr that I could, I trusted them. And what in the world did they do in a two week process to create trust? I'm like, You've been banking with the other people for 20 years and you don't trust them. It's like, no, I don't trust them because of, and they could tell me all the things that eroded the trust. Mm. And then I could actually see the things that actually made them build trust, which was they didn't come in with a pre-planned you know, agenda. They learned about my business. They were responsive enough and not too responsive. And they told me no. And so all of a sudden we just literally helped the bank make these changes and they've almost doubled sales. Huh. 
Interesting. And so, and so the whole aspect here goes back to this notion of like on the supply side, we sell, but on the de- demand side, they buy. And, and the, the, the sales funnel is not usually built for us to help people buy. It, it's built for us to meet cash flow. It's built for us to market. It's built actually, and I'm sorry, I'm just going to jump through a couple slides here. It's built through this aspect of here's one process that everybody goes through and marketing is responsible for this part and sales is responsible for this part. And there's all these handoffs. But when you actually reorient it from our sales funnel or where are people in the sales process to where are people in the buying process, one is they can actually articulate where it is. And by the way, I need marketing's help here, but I also need marketing's help here. I need marketing helps all the way down, to be honest, all the way down. Yep. And so by focusing them here, I actually spend less internal, I have less internal friction competing with each other. And I have more people actually focusing on helping consumers make progress. So that's the basic premise of the book. Did you create this deck or was it created by the folks no, that helped you with the book? Me. This is all, the, I created the deck first and then I wrote the book. That's so, yeah. so the way I usually do it is, is I have a thought or a set of thoughts. I build a talk. I give a talk a couple of times and then I write a book. So I've already got two more books. Uh, I, I've, let's see, the next book is, will be done by October. It's called uh, Learning to Build. And I've done that presentation four or five times. And so, and it refines over time, but it takes me about 12 months to write a book now. Huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah. So everything to me is visual. So I'm a total visual learner and I have what I call kernels where as long as I know space and time and movement, if I'm like, one of the reasons why I got to take notes is I can recall our complete conversation. As long as I have your name, where you are, I have to somehow remember where you are. And then I also then have to be writing or moving. And so if I have those three things, I have actually full eidetic memory. If I don't have those, I can't remember. And when you say my mom, where I am, do you mean physically like where I am in the world? Yes. Okay. Gotcha. Not like we're on zoom together. You're in Atlanta. Atlanta, So I I visualize you in Atlanta. I see you in Atlanta (laughs) and I literally come from above and I see, I go down onto Atlanta and now I'm in your house. (laughs) And, but the thing is for some reason, I have to actually have this spatial orientation of where somebody is in the world. And if I don't have it, I can't remember. Huh. Is it important like to know the, where they relate to you, where you are? Is that what you're trying to make the connection? Like where are they compared to Michigan or? So, so, so here's the thing is I can, re, I can recall an interview that I did for, for a product almost what, 18 years ago, right? They were in Dallas, Texas. They were actually in North Dallas. And I can tell you like where they, what they were, uh, name is Shelly. She basically was a, a software programmer. We were uh, working for a new Sierra. I was actually working on Basecamp, And, and at the same time, I can tell you all that, like, her problem was that she couldn't, she ended up downloading Basecamp because at some point all the, her company just started to grow and all like all these things kept falling through the cracks. And for her to become serious, she had to put some system in place, but the people who are working for her weren't tech savvy. And so she actually needed a way in which to like, this is 18 years old. This is 18 <laughs> years ago. I can remember all this. De- like I can see it in my head. <laughs> And so, you just have thousands of conversations like that in your head. I, I, I've done 10,000 interviews. Wow. That's crazy. And so, and so I, but the, here's the thing is you show me a book, can't read it. I listen to the book. I can actually then see the words. Okay. So if you give me a, if you give me document, the first thing I see is the spaces between the words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, well, that's, so that's, I uh, think, so your you know, idea of like applying that. the jobs to be done theory to sales and to the framework of sales, especially as you were like 
mapping out mark where marketing sales and yep. I forget customer the third success. system customer yep. success where it all maps to the sales process and those different six stages you had on the demand side that to me that's that's very <laughs> enlightening I've okay. never pictured it that way I've never tried to apply the jobs to be done theory to a sales process in that way but it does yeah. make a lot of sense so here's the thing is the part of it is also that I want to come from the outside because think of this we end up giving a 20% promotion dollars if you sign by the end of the quarter. If you sign today, yep. which is the end of the quarter, we'll, we'll, and you start to look at it from the demand side and you start to realize that's the stupidest thing in the world. It just, it, it makes no, and the reason why we do it is because the Church of Finance made some prediction of some quarterly earnings that we have to meet, which was some guess that they had to do in the first place without actually understanding what causes people to buy. And so we said, oh, we have to do 8 million in revenue this quarter and we're, we're not there. So we, we're actually willing to discount. So we actually discount the value from the customer perspective, because here's the thing is, if they're really having the problem they have and they got a job to get done, it's worth $200,000, not $160,000. <laughs> and, you're, and, and you're literally giving away the value of it because guess what? Next time they're going to want to discount again. Yep. So the, it's not sales that gives the discount. It's bad planning. And to be honest, the notion of not being really customer oriented to realize, and, and or it, here's the worst case is I close you on a sale because you get a 20% discount and you never use it. <laughs> That's even worse. Yeah. To realize like we have all these bad practices, right? So for example, Here's the thing is, is if I make mattresses, how many people need beds? How many people in the U.S. need beds? I guess a lot of them. <laughs> Everyone, <Yeah>. right? Everyone. <laughs> so the market is everybody. Right. But the reality is, the thing is, is it's context that creates the value. So how many people actually need a bed? The how one. many people know they need a bed? Right. By the way, what's, the competitor, to, what's the competitor to a mattress? Here's the thing is when you use jobs to be done, you find out that Z-Quill is the number one competitor <laughs> to a new mattress, not a mattress. Right. It's not the other mattress company. It's actually right. a, a different product. <laughs> exactly. It's, yeah. it, to be honest, it's three things. It's working out later at night so you get tired or yep. staying up. Scotch <laughs> or, or alcohol, if you will. And, and then Z-Quill. And, and you start to realize like all I have to say in marketing is so how many times do you have to see, sleep in your Barca lounger before you realize you need a new mattress. Like the, when the Barker lounger is more comfortable than your bed, it's time for a new mattress. Like that's, that's what nobody's, what they're doing now is they're telling people we've got foam, we've got uh, yep. coils, we got cooling. Like half the thing is you, you don't even understand anything that anybody's talking about for a mattress. So how do you reframe that? How do you make, how do you make the, obviously you're talking about building that space on the front end, yeah. but how do you make it such that they, be, they start to fill that space with a mattress and not with Zequil? Like, how do you start to frame that? Well, well, here's the thing is you might not actually be able to, huh. but the notion is to know that, that after, so we ran an ad for Casper that basically said, how many bottles of Zequil do you have to actually have before you realize it's not, it's the mattress, right? <laughs> like an 18% increase in sales. Wow. Right. And so how do we get that information? You interview people around what causes them to buy your product. And here's the thing is people don't buy it because it's Casper right? They buy a mattress because they can't sleep. They buy a mattress because they have more room. They buy a mattress because they're moving. They're buying a mattress because they don't want to actually take the old one with them. They buy, there's a thousand reasons, but, but most people just focus on why they bought Casper huh. and, and it's not the reason. And those are all the jobs to be done, right? Bob, in your example. That's, that's like exactly right. The jobs to be done are, so I call this, there's this cake layer of all the stuff that people say 
And it's, oh, I want to be healthy and I want to be... So when you unpack healthy, there's five different definitions of healthy. There's healthy, like I don't want to die healthy. There's like healthy, I want to actually have more energy healthy. Like I want to be able to do things that I can't do now. There's healthy that I want to look good in clothes. And then there's healthy as I want to look good for other people, like at my reunion. That's what causes people to actually do stuff. Not healthy, it's these other next layer down where it's unpacked. And so what happens is we expect... Here's the, the, I'll tell you this. The craziest part to me is when people say price is the problem, (laughs) it's never the problem ever. It's value. And what happens is nine times out of 10, when they say, well, it's, it's $90,000 for the software. Yeah, but I don't need all this stuff. I really only need half of it. So it should be like $50,000. Right. And they'll say, well, it's, it's too expensive. It's not really too expensive. It's the fact is because what they'll find is they have the resources. They just don't think it's worth it. And so what happens is we talk to people as if they know our product, right? And the reality is like, they don't buy mattresses all the time. They don't buy cameras all the time. They don't buy CRM all the time. And so when they're getting educated about it, we talk to them about the wrong, we don't know how a car works. (laughs) (laughs) So instead of talking about the product, instead of talking about the feature, we need to build the space first and then talk about, the way the jobs to be done at that point. Well, here's the thing is the, the struggling moment exists irrelevant of supply, right? So if people struggle they and they want to make progress, but they can't, it sits there for as long as you want, right? So Paul LeBlanc basically heard these, he's the president of SNHU and his basically basic thinking was how many people want to go back to school, but can't because they have to work. And so he said, I'm going to build something that's, look, it's not as good as coming to SNHU, but I'm going to build an online school that enables people to come to school and make the, not not get a degree, but make the progress they want to make. And so by understanding the jobs that people are trying to get done, like, help me escape. I hate being a teacher. Help me be a nurse. It's I'm working a day job and I, I have a job, but I want a career. And by actually helping people see where they want to go with the degree, He's been able to go from 500 online students to 200,000 online students. He's gone from 100 million to almost 2 billion. He's literally dropped the, the cost of education by 70%. He's a not-for-profit public institution. How many people want to go back to college but can't? Way more than 200,000. It exists, yep. but it's not actually being acted upon until he built the supply. So what is your goal with the book, like the demand side sales book with this framework, with this methodology, is this just something that you had it inside of you, you needed to get it out in the world. You think it would benefit a lot of folks to understand this. And then now you're onto your next project or, or is this, are you going to continue? So this is, this is my MVP. So my thing is, is, is there actually demand? Do people struggle enough with sales that there's actually, they need something, a different way to think about it and that they, they need a better way to think about it. And so I've already got, so I've got, so this is the book, which is my MVP, right? Right. And now, and now what I have is like, I have a class, I have actually individual coaching that I'm prototyping. So 2021 is when I'm building products. I'm actually building a, a CRM, uh, a CRM plugin for it. I'm actually building, uh, yeah, but we might talk about that. Right. (laughs) So, so, so the whole aspect is when you think about it, most people talk about where they are in the sales funnel, but I want to actually say, where are they in the timeline and what's the next step relative to their ability to buy, not our ability to sell. 
right? And so you start to realize like at some point, so I'm having a company called AutoBooks and as they revamped their entire sales uh, funnel to basically being the timeline, they, they've actually been able to have the time to sale and double sales without adding salespeople, by the way. Every sales manager's dream. Well, here's the thing is they had one demo and everything was about getting to the demo. Right. And then what they do is they'd force people to buy after the demo and say, well, here's it, here it is. Well, the demo when I'm actually in, in passive looking is I don't even know what this is. Help me understand what it is. So that demo ended up, we, we revamped it to say, if you're in active, passive looking, we're going to tell you stories and we're going to ask you why you're here and what do you, what do you want to get out of it? And, and, and we actually have that demo be very, very uh, small with a very small team. But the second demo is actually a very big demo that's 90 minutes with cross-functional teams and does it this way. And if they can't get the people to come to the second demo, they don't have the energy to implement anything. Right. And so we just keep them there. So we end up, instead of having one demo that literally tried to say everything, we actually broke it into three smaller or different demos that helped them move along the way. And they had to earn the right to the next demo. Based on meeting certain criteria or based on the jobs that they were trying, the progress they're trying gotcha. to make. So the, the whole thing is, is like at some point when they're in active looking, I need marketing there. I need the bank executives there. I need uh, IT there. I need everybody to tell me what, what are their feature sets. So when I come back for the third demo, I actually give them three options because they have trade-offs to make because at some point if they want it all, it's going to be this. But yep. if they want to do it faster, then they have to give up on that. And if they need to lower the price, then they got to give up on this. And so what happens is nine times out of 10, people actually can't decide because we only give them one option. Right. Take it or leave <laughs> it. Take it or leave it. And, and the, the reality is they don't know how to do it. And what you realize is two options is actually as bad as one option because all they can do is compare it to each other. But three options is actually the, the magic bullet because what happens is when you give somebody three things, the first thing they do is they eliminate one. So you actually have to give, one, give them an option that's a bad option. And they know it's a bad option, but when they eliminate it, then when they compare the two that are left, they don't compare it to each other. They compare it to the one that's out. So ultimately they don't actually pick the one they want. They eliminate the ones they don't want. It's way easier to tell me what you don't want than what you want. <laughs> Makes sense. So this is the whole thing is when you look at how you buy, that's how you buy. Like you, you go to the fridge and say, I'm thirsty. I want a water. You open the fridge and there's 10 things in there. Yep. Well, I could have water. I could have a shake. I could have a beer. I could have, and you start to go, it's too early for a beer. Uh, I'm going to have lunch. So I don't want the shake. Like you start to eliminate first and then you actually choose. Yep. And so this is the thing is that if you, we understand how people buy, why aren't we actually selling that way? Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so that's, that's where this comes from. Right. And I like your idea of starting. It sounds like you're starting this. You, the book was the MVP for you like this yeah. to just proof for proof of concept. I know it was just released, but have you already seen enough proof of concept to continue or? Oh yeah. I've got, so first day I had 2000 sales. I've got over 10,000 already. The fact is I'm going to have like uh, so I'm, I'm going to be on 22 podcasts. All right. And they range all the way from being successful and healthcare innovation to sales, like you're a sales, they're all over the place because the healthcare people are realizing we need uh, to teach, you know, doctors how to sell uh, prognosis. Like right. at some point in time, they're realizing like we've been just telling them and that's not actually working well. <laughs> so what piece, this podcast is for 
kind of revenue leaders, people in charge who have a proof of concept, maybe they've already got their MVP and they're yep. ready, they're ready to yep. accelerate uh, yep. and scale that organization, that sales operation, marketing, sales, customer success. Yep. What advice would you give them on the front end if they're already at the MVP point? Okay. How could they apply demand side selling yep. in that yep. circumstance? So the first thing is to take the early sales that you have and make sure you actually understand the progress that people are trying to make. Because before you actually heard this, all you've been hearing is the features they want and the and the problems that they have rel- relative to the product. But the fact is, is you have to realize like you might be just the mayonnaise on the sandwich. You're not the sandwich. Mm-hmm. And that they're trying to do something way bigger than what you're talking about. And you think they're really focused on certain things when you're literally a small piece of the bigger pie. And so by going and interviewing past, you know, basically people you've already sold and understand not, and to be honest, don't talk about your product. Why now? Why this? What else did you look at? What were you hoping for? How do you know what happened? What are your real met? met? So my thing is, you talk to people about a vacation and they'll always say, boy, I, I just want to make sure I, we don't spend too much money. I, like I want, I want to be on a budget. And then you ask them what they measure. Yeah, I have no idea how much I spent. <laughs> well, how'd you, how much did you save? I have no idea how much I spent, right? I don't know how much is on the, like this one person said, I'm flying to, the, to Thailand in October because it's the cheapest time. I'm like, well, how much cheaper is it? Well, I don't know. Somebody just said it was a cheaper time. So <laughs> they talk about being very frugal, but the reality is like, they're not frugal at all. Right. They don't, really, they don't care about the data that actually would right. back up their frugality. <laughs> That's right. So the other part is that the method itself is not built on market research. It's actually built on criminal and intelligence interrogation. People lie and they lie to themselves and they literally don't tell you everything you need to know. And so part of this is how do you extract the true causal mechanisms of what got them to where they are? And so part of this is, is actually listening not only to what they say, but how they say it understanding the context they're in and the outcome they want, understanding the anxieties they had around it. So when, here's the thing, somebody will say they wanted a feature. Boy, I want it searchable, easy to search. And you're like, great, what does that mean? And they'll say, I don't know, it's just, I can get somewhere quickly. I'm like, great, tell me what not searchable is. Well, you know, or not easy to search. Well, to be honest, the keywords are too big. I actually, there's a thousand responses that don't let me do it. They don't have unique undersigned identifiers. They can't sort, I mean, they can give me a thousand reasons why it's not uh, searchable, if you will. And so all of a sudden I have to use these things and we're so worried about the product that we're not worried about them. And Here's the crazy part is like, I just finished 10 interviews of the last two days. And I know more about this industry that they've asked me to do these interviews in than they do at this point. (laughs) Cause they haven't been listening to what people say. They've been listening to what people say about their product. Got it. Do you think that's the Achilles heel of market research then is that people just have, you know, blinders on and they only hear what they want to hear versus hearing what the customer is saying. There's three things. One is we're confusing correlation with causation. Yep. Right? Just because just because we have drownings and ice cream correlate, it doesn't mean that eating ice cream will cause people to drown. Right. But we treat, well, everybody needs a bed, so everybody's a prospect. So the size of the bed market is 18 or 350 million people. Yep. No, it's not that big, but we correlate it to that stuff. Right. I think the second thing is that people guess about the future and they lie. And so when we actually search, like, so when you survey people about the future and I say, what do you like, what are you going to have next Tuesday for lunch? Do you know? I have no idea. 
Right. And I can say, well, let me give you a list of options. Like of the options, which would you pick? And could you pick something? Sure. Right. And it's, well, I can increase the sample size and I can figure out 38% of the people say they're going to have chicken sandwich next Thursday, next Tuesday. Does that make it happen? Probably not. <laughs> nope. But if I ask you what you had for lunch last Tuesday, right? Can I actually figure out what caused you to have that chicken sandwich on that last Tuesday? Probably if you, that's kinda... the whole thing is I can talk about, well, I had this and this and this before, and I hadn't had chicken in a while. Right. I actually needed uh, something that was a, a drive-through. And so it was really more about the drive-through than it was about the chicken. Yep. And you start to realize like how you actually decide what it is. It might, might not be about chicken at all, but the reality is we end up being able to say we're experts about something and we need to talk about our product. And so again, being dyslexic the, the, for me, the whole aspect here was, I actually have no idea what causes somebody to buy a mattress. Not a clue in the world. I can guess, but I would say I'm better off just talking to people and hearing their stories. And from that, I, I'm doing actually hypothesis building research. I'm not doing hypothesis proving research. Hmm. Most, most market research is about verification of what we know, where at some point in time, we have no ability to actually admit we don't know. And so I guess the first step is admitting you don't know. It is. <laughs> and then is. from there, it's doing that hypothesis building research versus right. hypothesis confirming research. So, or, so there was no way that Casper thought that they competed with, with ZQL ever until they heard it. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was plain as day. Why didn't we see this? This was right well, in front I, of us. That's right. So, so Clay would say is it's, it's as, it's as murky as mud looking forward, but when you look back on jobs, it's as obvious as the air we breathe. Yeah. So, so we've worked with companies like Basecamp and MailChimp and the whole Google suite in terms of the, their products. I've worked, uh, who else would, all the social media people, like, like right. uh, you, know, I, you name it, we've been working with them. And the reality is that's how they're able to stay so focused on what they're good at and not step out of their lane and realize that Basecamp competes with Excel. <laughs> <laughs> These with cards, it doesn't compete with Microsoft project. Right. And like understanding who you're competing with, it's half the battle, I guess. And framing exactly up right. is framing up where you fit, framing up so, like all of those marketing and sales systems. If you know who you're competing with and those customer stories, then you know, like where to go and what to say. Right. So, so here's the thing we worked on in QuickBooks, right? Yep. The thing is, is if, if you ask an accountant to design the best software, it's not QuickBooks. They actually hate it. Most accounts hate QuickBooks. <laughs> but QuickBooks is actually built so you can still manage your books without hiring somebody. Yep. That's what it's actually designed for. It's designed right? to avoid a bookkeeper. That's right. And so it doesn't compete with other software. It can convenes with hiring somebody. Right. I can still take care of this without actually having somebody until I'm ready. And so you start to realize that, and to be honest, the number one reason why people get QuickBooks is the only thing they advertise on, which is help me get paid. The invoice gets lost. Like they do, a, they do $150 million in check and payroll work. Yep. But they don't advertise that because once you're in, then they actually know all the new struggling moments you have. Yep. But they've so got to they get you in the door somehow. Right. Well, no, they don't have to get you to, the, the people actually have to fit you in their lives. And the thing is, is when you start to tell them all the things you do, they're going to, I don't need that. 
<laughs> right. It's and what they much. realize is, and so they only sell the small thing to actually get them in the door, but it's the aspect of they're trying to actually help them make progress on that one thing. But they know once that's solved, there's going to be another thing. And then there's going to be another thing. And then, and so they count on the, the sequence of problems as opposed to trying to sell the thinking people can buy it all at once. Yeah. And do you think that would be a good strategy for like smaller teams ready to scale? Would they have that MVP? They, they're ready. And like, did they, should they focus on like the smallest possible problem first and solving that to build that relationship? And then from no, there, I, I think, I think that's a strategic decision around, around what are the other alternatives? How much satisfaction is there and how much energy that is there for people to actually want to make progress, but they can't. Okay. Right. And so it's really interesting. So one of the jobs we went off for SNHU was one where people wanted to step it up. Like I knew that I had to do better. I now have responsibility yep. and I have the sense that time is running out. There's another job, which is help me fill the gap or help me. It's this notion of like, I like to learn and I want to learn something new, right? The, those people literally will pop in and pop out. But the, when we focused on help me step it up, that's where we actually doubled down and built the system. And then we got the other people, but we figured out that was the one we had to go after. Gotcha. That makes sense. And so part of it is being it like being able to understand where to start and jobs will help you with that. So jobs is one of those things that, that I've been using for 30 years on product. But to be honest, as I built startups, I've used it on sales. I've used it on strategy. I've used it in marketing. I've used it in employees. So for example, when I interview people to hire, I actually use jobs. So one of my next books is uh, your next get your, your next thing, which is this aspect of employees hire companies as much as companies hire employees. So how do we actually understand the progress that an employee wants to make? What's the context that basically they're in when they say, God, I got to leave this place. And what are they hoping for when they actually go to the new place? Yep. Same problem. Huh. Yeah. It's an interesting way of, so it really can apply to a lot of different areas of, of yeah. business uh, and life for that matter. So the, so the, so the weird, I'll say not the weirdest, but the, the place I never thought I'd apply it is uh, religion. What causes somebody to, to, what job does religion do? It started out as what job does God do? And then you start to actually step back and say, what causes somebody to leave this church and go to a new church or leave this religion and go to that religion? And you start to realize like, it's about community. It's about a sense of, you know, being close, having a sense of closeness with the end. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that you start to realize like, and all the, all the most religions are just trying to coerce you into basically being part of the religion when with the, for example, I can't join a, I can't go into the church until I join. But the reason why I'm joining is because I want a community of people like myself. So how do you expect me to join me if I can't even come in and meet the people? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So they have a business model problem. They don't actually have they keep thinking they need to attract more people to a church. And the reality is, is no, you need to actually understand the progress they're trying to make with a church. Yep. So, that makes sense. Awesome. So, well, Bob, this has been great. I know we're coming up on time. How could my listeners find you online? So they can find me on basically Bmasta at LinkedIn. I have uh, the company I'm running now mostly is called the rewired group. So if you go to the rewiredgroup.com, I also have bobmesta.com and you get the book at on Amazon. It's the only, is there anything else? <laughs> Perfect. Awesome. Thanks, oh, Bob. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. You can find all the links discussed and the show notes at thesaleslift.com. That's the, T-H-E, sales, S-A-L-E-S, lift, L-I-F-T.com. Have questions for me? 
email me at tyler at thesaleslift.com. We look forward to seeing you back here next week. And we hope today's show brings you the sales lift your business needs. Remember, ideas plus action equals results. You've got new ideas. Now it's time to take action and the results will follow. See you next time.